Sometimes when I awake from a disturbing dream that might echo a disturbing reality of life, I want to stay under the covers for a while and not get out of bed. That might work for a while, but then life's necessities require movement. Once out of bed and with a cup of strong black coffee, I feel fortified enough to play Kenneth Branagh's St. Crispin's Day speech from the film version of Shakespeare's Henry V. For those of you out there who might be dragging yourselves through an otherwise lackluster day, give a listen and I believe it has a good chance of lifting your spirits. Branagh directed and starred in the film version of Henry V at only 29 years of age back in 1989. A fighting man. They have full threescore thousand. That's five to one. Besides, they are all fresh. Is a fearful odds. Oh, that we now had here. But one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. Brother, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and grounds for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand at tiptoe when this day is named and arouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly, on the vigil, feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispin's. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in their mouths as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day! Yeah! 
What wonderfully skillful musical composition supporting Shakespeare's stirring words. The music for the film was composed by Patrick Doyle, who worked with Kenneth Branagh on other films as well. I experienced near-paralyzing exhaustion this past weekend from helping to take care of young grandchildren. It has led me to a theory that perhaps man invented work to avoid child care. Initially, when men were hunter-gatherers, the division of labor made good sense. Men, being bigger and stronger, were better able to capture game and gather large amounts of fruit and nuts. The problem started when the men came back from a particularly successful hunting and gathering expedition. There was no immediate need to hunt and gather more food. This was when men got pressed into helping out with the kids. Their exhaustion was so overwhelming that they decided they had to come up with something that would relieve them from this unending and thankless task. That is when they invented the first office, which in this case was really a hunting lodge in which they could plan the next hunting-gathering expedition. The lodge needed to be comfortable and far from crying babies and whining toddlers so that the men could concentrate and optimize their efforts. And they needed to go to the lodge on a regular basis whenever they were back home so as to strengthen their cohesion as a team. Man in Space All you have to do is listen to the way a man sometimes talks to his wife at a table of people, and notice how intent he is on making his point, even though her lower lip is beginning to quiver. And you will know why the women in science fiction movies who inhabit a planet of their own are not pictured making a salad or reading a magazine when the men from Earth arrive in their rocket why they are always standing in a semicircle with their arms folded, their bare legs set apart, their breasts protected by hard metal discs. I do believe that I saw that movie as a youngster, and if memory serves me well, the women were throwing rocks at the early astronauts and taking them prisoner. Poet Billy Collins reading his own poem, Man in Space. Hey, how about the video clips of Jacksonville Jaguars football coach Urban Meyer celebrating with team boosters at his bar in Columbus, Ohio? There he was, fondling an all-too-willing attractive blonde while his dutiful wife was at home with the grandchildren. He was rightfully admonished by Shahid Khan, the owner of the Jaguars, for his behavior. Khan said that his conduct last weekend was inexcusable. I appreciate Urban's remorse, which I believe is sincere. Now he must regain the trust and respect of the team. My guess is that some of the players on the Jaguars could give Urban Meyer quite a tutorial on nightlife diversions. Mr. Khan might be particularly understanding of Coach Meyer's situation because he was born in Lahore, Pakistan, a country in which in 1961 they passed a law which allows you to have more than one wife. An urban mire can only have one.
understand And baby tell me once again uh -huh, Am I the man? Yeah, you ought to be ahead of letting me know You ought to be ahead of tell me so You ought to be here to prove it's true That I'm the only one for you And baby tell me once again uh -huh, I'm driving me wild But no, 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 no I'm gonna wait until you're in my arms I'm gonna wait until I have your charms I'm gonna wait till you come to me And love it, love it like it ought to be And baby, tell me once again oh, Am I the man? Just 
Jackie Wilson was born with a God-given gift of a magnificent voice, as you've just heard. His life was lived in the fast lane, and tragedy found him first in the form of a jealous girlfriend who shot him in the stomach. He came back after that grievous injury to continue to perform, drawing enthusiastic audiences wherever he went. Unfortunately, he was convinced that taking salt pills, drinking lots of water before performing, and sweating profusely was the primary reason that his female fans went wild. On September 29, 1975, that habit might well have contributed to his having a massive heart attack at the age of 41 during a rock and roll review organized by Dick Clark at the Latin Casino in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. While singing the words, my heart is crying from his hit, Lonely Teardrops, he collapsed on stage. Because his dance routines were as spectacular as his singing, the audience initially thought it was part of his act, and only Dick Clark silencing the band made people aware of what was going on. He was resuscitated by Cornell Gunter of the Coasters, but the lack of oxygen to his brain left him comatose. He died of complications from pneumonia on January 21st, 1984. When you're The following reading is a selection from Nicholas Pileggi's book, Wise Guy, the true story of Henry Hill and his life in the mob. The book was published in 1985. It was the basis for Martin Scorsese's film, Goodfellas. On Tuesday, May 22, 1980, a man named Henry Hill did what seemed to him the only sensible thing to do. He decided to cease to exist. He was in Nassau County Jail facing a life sentence in a massive narcotics conspiracy. The federal prosecutors were asking him about his role in the $6 million Lufthansa German Airlines robbery, the largest successful cash robbery in American history. The New York City police were in line behind the feds to ask him about the 10 murders that followed the Lufthansa heist. The Justice Department wanted to talk to him about his connection with a murder that also involved Michele Sindona, the convicted Italian financier. The organized crime strike force wanted to know about the Boston College basketball players he had bribed in a point-shaving scheme. Treasury agents were looking for the crates of automatic weapons and Claymore mines he had stolen from a Connecticut armory. The Brooklyn District Attorney's Office wanted information about a body they had found in a refrigeration truck, which was frozen so stiff it needed two days to thaw before the medical examiner could perform an autopsy. When Henry Hill had been arrested only three weeks earlier, it hadn't been big news. There were no front-page stories in the newspapers and no segments on the evening news. His arrest was just another of dozens of the slightly exaggerated multi-million dollar drug busts that police make annually in their search for paragraphs of praise. But the arrest of Henry Hill was a prize beyond measure. Hill had grown up in the mob. He was only a mechanic, but he knew everything. He knew how it worked. He knew who oiled the machinery. He knew literally where the bodies were buried. If he talked, the police knew that Henry Hill could give them the key to dozens of indictments and convictions. And even if he didn't talk, 
Henry Hill knew that his own friends would kill him just as they had killed nearly everyone who had been involved in the Lufthansa robbery. In jail, Henry heard the news. His own protector, Paul Vario, the 70-year-old mob chief in whose house Henry had been raised from childhood, was through with him. And James, Jimmy the Gent Burke, Henry's closest friend, his confidant and partner, the man he had been scheming and hustling with since he was 13 years old, was planning to murder him. Under the circumstances, Henry made his decision. He became part of the Justice Department's Federal Witness Protection Program. His wife, Karen, and their children, Judy, 15, and Ruth, 12, ceased to exist along with him. They were given new identities. It should be said that it was slightly easier for Henry Hill to cease to exist than it might have been for an average citizen, since the actual evidence of Hill's existence was extraordinarily slim. His home was apparently owned by his mother-in-law. His car was registered in his wife's name. His social security cards and driver's licenses, he had several of each, were forged and made out to fictitious names. He had never voted. He had never paid taxes. He had never even flown on an airplane using a ticket made out in his own name. In fact, one of the only pieces of documentary evidence that proved without doubt that Henry Hill had lived, besides his birth certificate, was his yellow sheet, the police record of arrests he had begun as a teenage apprentice to the mob. A year after Henry Hill's arrest, I was approached by his attorney, who said that Hill was looking for someone to write his story. At that point, I had been writing about organized crime figures for most of my career as a journalist, and had gotten bored with the egomaniacal ravings of illiterate hoods masquerading as benevolent godfathers. In addition, I had never heard of Henry Hill. In my office are four boxes of index cards upon which I compulsively jot the names and various details of every major and minor organized crime figure I run across in the press or court dockets. When I looked in it, I discovered I had a card on Hill dated from 1970 and misidentifying him as a member of the Joseph Bonanno crime family. And yet, from the mountain of data the feds had begun to compile about him since his arrest a year earlier and the importance they attached to him as a witness, it was clear that Henry Hill was at least worth meeting. Since he was in the federal witness program, the meeting had to take place at a location where his safety was guaranteed. I was instructed to meet two federal marshals at the Braniff counter at LaGuardia Airport. When I got there, the two men had my ticket in their hands. They asked if I had to go to the bathroom. It struck me as a bizarre question coming from federal agents, but they explained that once they gave me the ticket, I could not leave their sight until we boarded the plane. They couldn't take the chance that I might see the destination and tip someone off as to where I was going. As it turned out, the plane we took was not a Braniff plane, and the first place we landed was not the place where Henry Hill was waiting. It took more than one flight that day to finally get to a town where, I learned later, Hill and his federal agent bodyguards had arrived just a couple of hours earlier. Hill was a surprising man. He didn't look or act like most of the street hoods I had come across. He spoke coherently and fairly grammatically. He smiled occasionally. He knew a great deal about the world in which he had been raised, but he spoke about it with an odd detachment, and he had an outsider's eye for detail. Most of the mobsters who have been interviewed for books and articles over the years have been unable to detach themselves from their experiences long enough to put their lives in some perspective. They so blindly followed the mobster's path that they rarely saw any of the scenery along the way. Henry Hill was all eyes. He was fascinated by the world in which he had grown up, 
and there was very little about it that he did not remember. Henry Hill was a hood. He was a hustler. He had schemed and plotted and broken heads. He knew how to bribe and he knew how to con. He was a full-time working racketeer, an articulate hoodlum from organized crime, the kind of rara avis that should please social anthropologists as much as cops. On the street, he and his friends referred to each other as wise guys. It seemed to me that a book about his life might provide an insider's look at a world usually heard about either from the outside or from the top. You've been listening to a selection from Nicholas Pileggi's book, Wise Guy, published in 1985. The true story of Henry Hill and his life in the mob. Nicholas Pileggi was a crime reporter for the New York Daily News for more than 20 years. Wise Guy was the book that the film Goodfellas was based on. Tosti braccia, quella casa non porta caccia fa. Voglio che sto occhio, voglio che sta faccia, adocere d'ogni felicità. Suono da vita mia, di mappa quale via, taccio venian contra.
show with the beautiful singing of Claudio Vila and the song Torna. <laughs> Folks, thanks for keeping me company. This is Joe Weber saying so long here from the Voice of the Arts.